Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off with, we're joined by our panel to discuss some of the stories in this morning's Sunday newspapers. On one side of the table here is someone who's been reporting from Leinster House since the mid-1990s. He's the co-author of the number one bestseller, Hell at the Gates, an inside story of the Cowan government, how political ed- now political editor of the Irish Mail on Sunday, uh, John Lee. Uh, good morning. You're licking yourself again. Another guard of I scoop. wish I knew how to do that. Lick myself. <laughs> A front page Scoop will be coming to it very shortly. Alongside him is the former legal editor of the Irish Independent and author of Bust, How the Courts Expose the Rotten Heart of the Irish Economy, a native of Newry in Northern Ireland, a multi-award winning journalist. She's now the group business editor at INM Newspapers, Derville MacDonald. Uh, and I see you've moved from the four courts. You were at a sunny conference in Portugal, Lois. Working, working uh, outside of Lisbon last week. Uh-oh. Very difficult work. Right. <laughs> well, um, another legal expert watching over me today is a senior counsel with specialist knowledge of oversight of the financial services industry. She's an expert in resolutions and the founder of Mediation Forum Ireland. She's also the uh, founding ombudsman for both the defence forces and the insurance industry, born in Belfast, raised in London and now based in Dublin. It's a great pleasure to welcome Pauline Marin and uh, Quinn. You're very welcome to Yates on Sunday. Are your mediation skills available for Leo and Simon? I hear there's a Blair Brown deal on the table. they're very available. Okay. Well, we'll discuss the uh, forthcoming departure of Enda. Will it ever Enda? Um, let's take a, f- a scan of the front page lead stories this morning. The Sunday Independent follows up on a story that Niall O'Connor had yesterday in the front page of the Irish Independent. The Minister and a political, in quotes, phone tap. Um, this is a Sunday Independent investigation that alleges that um, there's quite a lot of phone tapping and that a case was settled out of court. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Business Post, um, there's acres of analysis, all pretty negative on the Public Sector Pay Commission report, saying it failed to carry out a proper assessment of international norms and comparisons with Irish pay levels. But their, their, their lead is an element of that story, exclusive. Younger workers to be left behind in new public sector pay deal. New recruits, up to 50,000 of them since 2010, of course, are on yellow pack uh, pay and conditions. That's not proposed to be changed in the forthcoming talks now underway. The Sunday Times leads with abortion for health reasons backed by 70... uh 5%, that's 3 out of 4 voters support abortion in cases where a pregnancy could damage a woman's future health. They have a, a political poll as well. Not a lot of change. Nip and tuck between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil at around 28%. And we referred to John Lee's scoop earlier. The front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Blistering memo. The Garda chief must dread exclusive the explosive minutes of meeting that undermines O'Sullivan's testimony to Dáil Committee. And that is under the byline of their political editor, John Lee. John, just talk us through this story. You had a similar lead last week. You seem to have had sight of the Garda uh, Human Resources Chief John Barrett's uh, memo. Is that the case? 
Yes, it kind of began as a, a um, as often these things do, competition between journalists to see who could get this much talked about memo. But then when I started reading it, I realised I needed the assistance of my colleagues in the newsroom because it is one of the more most substantial documents I've seen submitted to a parliamentary committee. Uh, he has <coughs> clearly, um, over the recent years, decided there was a need to have very, very comprehensive notes. In some instances, through, through the memo, he points out that he has sent his minutes, memos and notes of meetings to other participants by um, uh, Register Post, which is, I believe, a tool that legal people often use, sometimes politicians, you might tell us, if they're concerned that down the line the the veracity of of those um, of those notes may be questioned. So, when you delve into it, some of the allegations that were, have been out there in the public sphere uh, claims about Templemore, in particular, Templemore um, Garda College, um, he puts far far greater detail on the, on those. He um, just tell us why the commissioner will dread it. What, what are the aspects some, that are new and will conflict with her evidence? And then that's why you're such a great um, journalist. You cut straight to the line. You sound like my editor. Stop, <laughs> stop waffling. Um, within this memo, there are further contradictions of, of of the commissioner's account. From the commissioner's point of view, she was at a PAC meeting earlier this month where she outlined. Her the depth and timeline of her knowledge of the activities at Temple at Temple Moor, the the, um, the um, misuse of funds. Let's put it that way. He he has in this memo, which we would later hear, I'm sure, at public hearings at the at the PAC. He says she knew she knew about the details uh, a month earlier than she says at the at the PAC. Now the commissioner may come back and say that you know this is a difficult issue and that you know I've reviewed my notes and. Perhaps I was, you know, you know, whatever she says, let's not predict that. Well, he well, contradicts yeah. her timeline of events, which undermines her position further in the public eye. Well, well here is the Garda Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan, at that PAC meeting, clarifying when she was made aware of the 6th of July report written by Executive Director of HR and People Development, John Barrett. Chair, perhaps I can be helpful there. So this matter uh, was brought to my attention on the 30th of July. And immediately what was evident from the correspondence I received from the Deputy Commissioner O'Coulon on my left, and this matter was brought to 2015. So what I'm really wanting to get at here, John, is this. It is a hanging offence for a minister or a public figure to mislead the door. Okay, that is just yes. the, that's routine. Did she mislead the PAC in 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 kind of camouflaging the fact that in the initial stages she maybe didn't do things she needed to do with this dossier? She is in conflict with another witness. That witness is armed with a hundred and twenty-five page dossier of his. Statements and his understandings uh, understanding of what uh, what occurred, she has yet to produce uh, a similar a similar dossier. At, at the moment, there are, there's a clear co- um, conflict of facts between she and Mr. Barrett. Also, your story uh, says a letter from Tipperary TD Michael Lowry to the Justice Minister Francis Fitzgerald about Templemore Golf Club. Just when I was getting to grips with the boat club, we now have a golf club and a 220 grand gross redundancy payment for staff um, with SIP to paid out of the slush fund. Uh, like, 
just, is there any end to this, John? Well, uh, there has to be, and uh, what appears to have gone on since um, since uh, some of this was discovered within within the force is the people who were involved in running Templemore have been promoted, so they don't seem to be taking it too too seriously. The we, we had an audit report a few weeks ago that has been aired as well since since the treatment of massive, massive amounts of money with absolute flagrant disregard for accounting uh, the basic uh, basics of accounting is just is just extraordinary I've never seen, I've never seen anything like it there are there are gifts bought, bought for retiring um, retiring um, commissioners out of out of mo- funds that flowed into a restaurant account there was no control over the restaurant accounts they're the minor things we saw saw recently in the story I did but to take on for instance the redundancy payments for five or six workers uh, out of a cash account is just is just extraordinary because they also have taken on pension payments. Now, as we all know, pension payments can recur for 40 years for a group of people. So it indicates the size of this cash account. It wasn't a, it wasn't a savings account. It was a cash account. Some of these accounts then, according to Mr. Barrett, um, were opened in credit unions. Um, to to put some of the money in, it's it's for, even for a person with my limited understanding of how one controls cash, they are beyond what I've seen before. And just when you thought you couldn't take any more of this kind of stuff, from a million breath tests to whistleblowers and all the rest of it, we have this Sunday Independent story. And I'll just read the first paragraph out, because I can't get my head around it, and I need your help, Darrell, to explain it. An election worker for a serving politician had his mobile phone tapped by Gardaí and the bugging stopped only when an officer raised a concern it was being done for political purposes. What on earth is this about? Who was bugging who and was it legal? Yeah, so what what has emanated um, over the last two days, both in the Irish Independent and the Sunday Independent, um, is a series of stories by my colleague Niall O'Connor, and it centres on a legal case that was taken by a former detective who's uh, involved in the Crime and Security Division up at uh, Garda headquarters, which is essentially the the secret intelligence um, unit of the Garda. Um, it doesn't relate to... Um, this government, it's a previous government and, and it predates Noreen O'Sullivan's appointment, but obviously the, the settlement, the legal settlement with this guardie, uh, this detective was made earlier this year um, in February. And essentially it focuses on his concerns uh, that there was suspected illegal phone tapping and that it may have been for political purpose. And he says that when he raised concerns about it, and he had a number of concerns about the shoddy paperwork as he uh, believes that, that, uh, that ground, because obviously there are procedural issues you have to go through before you can secure a warrant to tap someone phones. Yesterday we heard that innocent members of the public um, had their phones um, tapped perhaps by accident, maybe because of this um, documentation kind of wasn't in order. But essentially he says that when he raised the concerns, he was sidelined, he was moved on um, and that resulted in a legal case that was taken by him. I think it should be said that covert surveillance um, by Gardaí, even very, very intrusive surveillance by Gardaí, is permissible um, under law. I think people would be probably quite staggered to realise the extent to which we can be um, surveilled. Um, uh, you know, we've been in a permanent state of an emergency since 1939. But what his concerns centre on is is that he fears that this was being used for a political purpose. He said an election worker had his phone um, bugged and uh, by, the, I suppose, the monitoring unit within Crime and Security. Now, we never, we will As never... Request. Well, well, this is kind of just it's it's 
what's not just maybe entirely clear to me this morning, said it was topped by Gardaí. What he said he fears was that it was, um, now it's been denied that the activity was related to political purpose, but he said that he felt that it may have been and he raised concerns. And the concerns were obviously significant enough because that particular um, tapping or bugging ended within days of which he raised concerns. Okay, so, so more recently, mm-hmm. his case was settled out of court, presumably with some form of financial compensation. Yes, I understand it was a... Okay. Now, is, is it being alleged that that meant that the case never got to court, there was no transparency about it, and that that amounts to a cover-up? Well, no. Look, look. nine out of ten cases are settled on the court, if not more. That's the, the reality um, of it. Um, what we don't benefit from the fact that actually the, the courts wouldn't function if every case that was brought actually went to full hearing. But I think what, what we have lost in the opportunity of this case being heard is those allegations to be fully aired, is senior witnesses, including witnesses from the Gardaí. Although I was just saying earlier, I wonder, had this case actually gone to a full hearing, would it have been heard actually in open court or would there would have been restrictions given the nature uh, of, the, of the activity okay, um, I, alleged? And I, we have to remember that, that this is a system that is meant to be overseen. There is judicial oversight. So every year, a high court judge is inspected to, to review the system um, of warrants. But he, but he seems to be suggesting this detective who was very, very well decorated was that, that it was the Gardaí who were essentially doing all the paperwork and it was uh, not even maybe presented as a fait accompli. But obviously the, the minister of the day has to sign those warrants and I think he was saying that the real problem existed at the very outset of it. Now this is because I've read through the, the High Court, the various reports that High Court judges do and it always kind of get, it gets, gets a clean sheet and a, and a clean whistle but I suppose that it, because of this case being settled we won't actually ever get to have the full details aired and um, and you know what we're not um, obviously getting and I suspect there's legal reasons for doing so is who is the election worker who is the politician but I suppose what's significant about it is that it is 35 years since you know the groundbreaking um, privacy action taken by Geraldine Kennedy and uh, and Andrew it did Arnold. for Hawhey in the end yes, with Darty. it did yeah. and, and but it, 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 that I suppose is, is it, it raises those echoes kind of and those um, fears once again but as I say because it didn't go to hearing perhaps we didn't get to, to, to have the full details aired uh, Pauline Marilyn Quinn um, can the Commissioner survive with this daily diet of more Garda disaster stories that is wrecking the morale and public confidence in the Gardaí? I think there's always a risk when things are at this kind of boiling point of controversy that whoever is in the maelstrom, whoever is there perhaps as the central figure, the protagonist or one of the top role players uh, in, in a position of authority, there's always a risk that the spin will then spin round them and that the kind of suds of the, all this froth will land on them. I and mean, here's an example. This phone tapping issue that you've just been discussing with Gervla, this predates the commissioner. Um, predates well, her the settlement time. of the case well, doesn't. Well, I mean, that's a different matter. She might not have had authority over the settlement. Those would have been legal, legal people making decisions outside the door of the court about the settlement, and that would have been under legal advice. Um, so I think it's dangerous to perhaps whip it all up and say, here she goes again, because it isn't anything to so do with So nothing to see here? Uh, not that there's nothing to see, but I just fear that there is a risk at the moment that we're kind of, you know, okay, we put it's everything into... a bit frothy into, and frenzied, I get that. It's a bit that. frothy and frenzied, and we just, let's say for a okay. moment, I don't think that this okay. directly relates I, to I, her. I, I, can, I, can, I can see that point in right. relation to the Bougainville, but in Thank relation you. to the Temple Moor situation, it does seem there was a culture of circling the wagons. Now, you were the ombudsman, another military organisation, mm-hmm. the Defence Forces. And here we have a pattern where we have about four people uh, who are part of the civilian management 
coming up against the culture of, we'll say, the uniformed culture. Um, give us your insight into that in terms of uh, how, how do you actually reform that? Well, I think it would be quite controversial to have too many high high positioned civilian people in something like an armed force or a defence forces structure. And I think perhaps there'll be arguments against doing that. In the police force where we've had civilian people coming in and, and now being praised because they're allegedly coming from corporations and businesses where they're more adept at having forensic accountancy practices going on a daily basis and they're more able to kind of see things clearly and they work to a different standards. They're kind of being credited I think in many ways they're being credited now with coming in and finding things simply because they came in. They saw as outsiders old customs and practices. And unfortunately, organisations do fall into bad old ways. There are old customs and practices that can prevail and it's very difficult for them from inside to see those if people at a senior level are seen to be condoning them or indeed getting promotion. What has gone wrong here is that there has been a serious fundamental failure of process and procedures in the the Garda Shia Corner. Um, It didn't arise in my job as in the Defence Forces because there were some civilian employees, but there was never anything of this nature. Um, And indeed, nor did one ever think that it was was going to ever be necessary for people to come in at high level from a civilian background. What I think here is... um, a clash of cultures. Um, whenever the new minister took over, I remember there was all this talk, the new minister for, for justice, there was all this talk about, oh, sea change and change culture. Ch- culture doesn't change overnight. And what, has, what I believe we as the citizens and the legislators in Ireland have failed to do is to properly and adequately address the oversight of the Garda Shia Corner. That, that is something successive that has happened for generations through the entire 15 years that I've been a journalist. It has just been report after report, the amount of legal cases, the tribunals, everything that we have covered. And we have failed to fundamentally change it. And I might give maybe some insight as someone who grew up um, in Northern Ireland where... Um, uh, half of the population did not trust its police service and how difficult and how destructive that is. And you now have a situation in Northern Ireland where Catholics do, by and large, maybe with some few exceptions, trust the PSNI. When I was growing up, even routine things like a burglary, a car theft or some sort of assault, people didn't have Mm -hmm. the confidence to go to the the then RUC. The Patent Commission comes in and what it was was a root and branch reform and change. And that has been one of the biggest actually changes in the North. We need a root and branch um, reform. Every time we've done it, we have tinkered around the edges. And I felt that during the last appointment for the Guard Commissioner, that was the point to get someone from the outside. I think it was a lost opportunity to get someone in. But here's the difficulty, and this is something perhaps maybe people don't realise when we think of our police force. Around the world, a lot of police forces are divided into two divisions. There is your policing, your day-to-day policing, and there's your security and intelligence. And in Ireland, that is moulded into one. And one of the reasons why they're afraid to let outsiders come in, obviously no government wants to hand over control, especially in this day and age with hacks and everything else, but control of its security and intelligence, especially in a culture of ours, which has been so paranoid around terrorism and other issues. So I think that we probably need to... Now, there's huge opposition against it, but we really need to look at the the day-to-day policing and the security and 
and intelligence functions. But what we need is new a new breath of fresh air, different people to come in. Because what I'm really, really worried and concerned about is because it's it's a bit like you know you know you might give out about politicians and like your own, you might give out about doctors but like your own. But the problem I think with now is that the, because there is the fundamental trust, the public trust is collapsing in the Gardaí, and that is really, really dangerous for social cohesion. I, I agree entirely with Darvela, and I think her comments about Northern Ireland are very apt. And also it's worth noting that all of that Patton Commission Mm -hmm. and the recommendations resulted in the first uh, police ombudsman of Northern Ireland being appointed, Nuala I have to say I totally disagree. There were fundamental issues of historical sectarianism at play there. Mm -hmm. What we're dealing with here is plain fraud. Well, yes, but can I just develop That's the point? That's not a cultural can I, can issue. I, can I just That's develop, just plain breaking the law. The problem, the, the, the mistake that was made was appointing Noreen O'Sullivan in the first place. If you're concerned about, uh, concerns about the culture at the top of the Gardaí, why would you appoint the person whose first public, the first time she came into public consciousness on a broad scale was seeing her sitting beside Martin Collin at that time when he insulted the Garda whistleblowers. She was his, his effective deputy. How, how is she going to clean up a police force when she has been working alongside that man for so long? That was the opportunity, as Derville said, to, to lop off the, t- the, the top of the police force. The reason she's still there um, is political, political, re- political, political. reason. The, the Taoiseach, well, because the, the government are impotent. The, the, the Minister for the Justice is out no of our depth. The Minister for Justice, from, what, from po- what politicians were saying to me last night, will not be reappointed um, by the next Taoiseach. And that will give the, the next Minister yeah. for Justice the ability to get rid of the Garda Commissioner, no. which is a crazy no. way to conduct a, uh, to, to manage a police force, a manage a country. May I intervene here yeah. and just quote yourself back? I think you said on this programme last week, we don't do oversight in this country. We don't do accountability. We don't do oversight and we don't do accountability. Okay. We have a built-in inertia to that. We have made an absolute dog's dinner of the way we have, dis- we have tried to oversee the, the Garda Siakona. And we owe them a debt of apology, actually, because we have thrown a Garda ombudsman into the mix. We've had a Garda inspectorate bringing in uh, um, police officers from New York. And and the big changer was the police authority. And And that is the dog that hasn't barked. I mean, Josephine Fairley was trailed as this uh, hard-assed revenue person who was going to get answers. She's actually done nothing for 18 months. This has been a complete hodgepodge. We've We've thrown all of these different... We haven't given them the proper... We've thrown these bodies Ah, at them. I wonder. May I also add that there is always the risk in any of the administrative justice processes you look at, the risk of overarching, overarching authorities, overarching jurisdictions. That is precisely what has happened here. Now we have these bodies and nobody in the public knows what they do and nobody in Garda Corner knows what so they do. So who are you blaming? So I'm blaming the legislators. I'm blaming the absolute models. We've all a hand in that because we have people up there doing a very bad job for us. But that's May like Enda Kenny saying when no, he was out foreign, the recession, oh, we all went crazy. No, we no, all no, went, no one was to blame. What we have failed to do with the Garda Shia is. We have failed to approach it in the way that they did with the Defence Forces, may I add, in 2002 when they put in Dr Eileen Doyle to have a root and branch look at the, at the force. What they did in that and the template is there, the methodology is there, they went in and they looked at it from inside. This has to be a consultative process. I saw that Nulo alone was recommending recently that we have another international commission to look at Garda Shia I have huge respect for her, but I disagree with her on that. I think what we need to do is have have a, have, a, have a study that is consultative, goes into the Gardaí corner, starts from there, works on a review of that, sees what they want, their comments, and then works outward. But we have the, never looked at it that way, back, I, ever. Want to, I want to come back to what you said there, John. Uh, you did a bit of 
crystal ball gazing there saying that a new Minister for Justice, which I think is definitely going to be the case, particularly if Leo wins, um, and Fianna Fáil would suit them because it solves their problem as well. Are you saying that if Francis Fitzgerald is no longer Minister for Justice, the Noreen O'Sullivan problem, uh, whereby two-thirds of the doll at least don't have confidence in her, will become a reality in the truth. That's, con- that's the conversation I had with Cabinet Ministers yesterday. That is their way of explaining why a plainly flailing um, commissioner who is who has, has continues to be uh, propped up. Well, she she's running a force. If it was a private company, and it's it's, an, it's almost a cliched analogy at this stage. If you were looking at the chief executive, and th- that person was in in conflict with people at, at committees, th- was repeatedly making public statements about problems to do with your statistics, to do with your training college, which forms the culture of every guard in this country, um, been involved in let's let's face it, financial irregularities that can't be be reconciled at all. The person will be gone. And this is not about policy. And Kenny, and Kenny uh, uh, is 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 propped up by the opposition party. He has been on a on a departure procession for a year. To be honest about it, he said he said that he would come home from Saint, the St Patrick's Day visit, which is what six weeks ago, two months ago. We will be coming to that later in the program. And programme. hasn't done so. So we were told last night the spin that was being put around the highest levels of government was that the next minister for justice, who they were accepting, would not be Francis Fitzgerald, would um, move. To yeah, it might be John the commissioner's situation. This is not about policy. It's not about reform. It's not about substance. This is all about the chain reaction politics. Look at how many people were thrown under the bus during the last when the last Garda commissioner left. This is about the, as long as Francis Fitzgerald is minister for justice, they, they will not push. If she goes, well, then that obviously clears the space. But the reason, and especially while, and we'll talk about end as long valedictory. The reason why she is there at the minute is essentially it's propping up a political order because they won't get rid of the Minister for Justice, so she is safer there. But also to lose a, the second Garda Commissioner would trigger the collapse of the government, and but they don't want to do that. that. And and just before we take a break, Seeger's song "When Will We Ever Learn?" We were still <laughs> discussing this in the context of politics. We will never resolve okay, this until we go that. into the Garda Shea Corner, review it, and say, "What do you want to need?" Pauline, what about the leadership issue in the Garda Shea Corner? where you have almost the requirement for the PAC to hear the uniformed people and the commissioner in one room and the uh, civilian people in the other. I mean, if you read through both Barrett and um, the head of audit, uh, Niall Kelly, uh, and others, you know, there does seem to be a leadership issue there. When I say, Ivan, I had this conversation just out in the green room with John before we came in. It appears that these people produced um, a memo and notes, a very large one, that's now being called a dossier. God, can we bear another dossier on the headlines? And they circulated this and sent it by registered post to one another. Did they send a copy to the to the commissioner? I must say, if I were if I were sitting if I were sitting in a room and somebody were having a meeting was having a meeting with me and they took notes of that meeting and they later produced them and said this is what was said at the meeting and we sent them to everybody but did they send them to me? Some people some people had to record conversations to have their veracity. Do you remember remember the whistleblower? Criticism of the public service in Ireland that there wasn't proper note taking taken at at meetings, which is a a basic requirement. Well, there's nothing wrong with them taking the notes. I'm 
arguing and questioning why he did not send the commissioner a copy of the notes that he sent to himself and sent to the other members present. John Lee, Derval MacDonald and Pauline Mernon Quinn are my guests this morning. Well, of course, the biggest uh, ticket item in the Dáil this week was the joint session of both houses to listen to the chief Brexit negotiator for the European Commission with the UK, uh, Michel Barnier. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Because of its historical and geographical ties with the UK, because of your shared border and strong economic links, Ireland is in a unique position. Today, in front of these two houses, I want to reassure the Irish people, in this negotiation, Ireland's interest will be the Union interest. We are in this negotiation together, and the United EU will be here for you. Now Brexit changes the external borders of the EU, but I will work with you to avoid a hard border. Derville MacDonald, those honeyed words there, do they mask um, a situation whereby if the ugly war of words between Britain and the EU deteriorates further, that they will actually be rendered meaningless? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the fear. Um, I th- They were lovely words to hear from Michel Barnier, but I actually spent much of last week in... Sunny Cash- Portugal. Sunny Portugal. I was uh, reading about it in today's paper, in yeah. The, <laughs> in the lovely uh, working, uh, in the lovely surfing uh, village of Kashkai, and I was speaking at a conference uh, which had gathered together over 300 general counsel and senior executives from some of the biggest um, companies that are operating in Europe. And we're at the epicentre of Brexit, so obviously we're, our passions are running high. Um, I grew up on the border. My mommy's from Dundalk, my dad's from Newry. We crossed over those border crossings every single week, and I have very, very vivid memories of the disruption that that caused, even when it was a friendly border, when it was just for customs or just for other issues, as opposed to when well, there the was... Well, the accent is a bit of a clue. It is a wee bit of a clue, but as opposed to when it was for genuine security reasons, when there were bomb scares, there's a 13-kilometre stretch of road between Newry and Dundalk, close to where we grew up, known as Bomb Alley, and I have very, very vivid memories of that and I know so many of the border crossings haven't <laughs> had to avoid um, the, the main roads but when I was over and speaking about Brexit in the European Union I was kind of armed with all these tales of growing up on the border to try and explain to people um, what it is like for us in Ireland and how much it's not just customs and trade but it's a psychological blow but what was really kind of quite staggering is how little they really care. They're kind of sympathetic towards our plight but the reality is all of these well, all that they care about are priorities like the rights of EU workers in the UK and vice versa. They're worried about things like trade and contracts. They're worried about free movement of people. But the vitriol between mainland Europe and Britain, the contempt, such a brutal way to even start divorce negotiations, makes me think that despite all of these honey words, where are we going to be in all of this? And I see Brian Hayes in the Sunday Times is saying, you know, uh, with, Bre- with Britain leaving, we have to lean into the EU. Part of me thinks that we need to lean into the UK, given that, you know, and we're going to be in a really difficult position because we don't have standalone status in these negotiations. We're hoping maybe for special status, but we're negotiating with the group. And I just worry about how much our 
voice is going to be heard. And And there's no such thing. You can talk about a virtual border. You can talk about a nice, friendly border. But a border is a border. And at this stage, I think the only decision is going to be, is it going to be hard or ultra hard? And that's going to be really difficult, I I think, for us. I was out in in Brussels in in March um, visiting my mate, Phil Hogan, and I was very struck by how far away and how minuscule Ireland appeared from the Berlamont building. That they really, they, they don't wish us ill, but it's nearly like us talking about immigrants coming into Italy and Greece. It's a bit far away. It's not our problem. Is there, is, is there not a reality, Pauline, that, that we'll be lost in translation here? Hmm. Well, I mean, somebody once said many years ago, didn't they, around the time of the Troubles, some journalist in, in Belfast said, anyone who knows what says he knows what's going on here doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So we didn't understand it. Uh, it's been the most complex of relationships. So it follows that people abroad have very little comprehension about what is happening there on the edge of the world, as we are really on the edge of the, of the, of the European continent. Um, and I believe that we are not being helped by Theresa May, who I believe knows and cares very little about the Irish situation. She's an extremely conflictual person. Her language now and her approach to these so-called negotiations is little short of, of, of outrageous because she's now doing a Churchillian lap of England in her general election speak and she's talking about, I mean, as if, I mean, I have no disrespect to Churchillian rhetoric if you're defending the beaches from invasion, but we're not, she's not. She's actually trying to negotiate the exit from could, the Could I put an absolute counterpoint, which is this, that she has about 30 nut jobs, really hardcore Eurosceptics in her party, right? And the only way... So she can she can manage them and lower expectations and get a realistic deal is do all this jingoistic stuff cannibalise UKIP and Labour voters, get a big majority and then cut a deal because she'll have authority. That actually her rhetoric is moving in one direction but her actual pragmatic politics might be moving in another direction. But she's misleading her own people. I mean riddle me this, she's talking all the time about uh, this will strengthen my hand How will she strengthen her hand to negotiate when the British people themselves don't even know what her hand is going to, how she's going to play the hand? I think she's misleading the British population. She's going to get a landslide victory because Labour is walking backwards into disaster. Um, But I believe that Theresa May is a person who doesn't actually see round corners. She has no notion about how... But she was a Bremener. She was a Remainer, but a very weak one. And evidently, do you remember the comment made by um, Ken Clark when he talked, his, the, he came off from an, an interview programme around the time of the elections, of the uh, leadership yes. election, and he didn't realise the microphone had been uh, yeah. was kept on. And he said to, Mar- to Malcolm Rifkin beside him, two old codgers talking there, and they said, oh, she's a bloody difficult woman. And... Um, so he's he, now grasped that. He, he's, he's now grasped that, and she's walking around using that in a self congratulatory way, which irks me even more about her. I find that infuriating. And but also that's because you're into mediation stuff. No, no, but misguided. Conflict is good <laughs> at times. Misguided. It changes but things. But may I just say that Ken Clark, if you read the rest of what he said off the, off the mic, he said, I don't know her very well. I think she was too long as Foreign Secretary, and she knows very little about foreign affairs. And now, I think that's the okay, fact. Okay, you write for a British paper, John. Tell us <laughs> About, tell us about the... It's got an the, Irish... The, the, it's got a green bit on the front page. Yeah, no, it's page, OK. Though, it's got the shamrockery. Um, OK. Uh, and I, and I Give us a British perspective on this. I've written a bit in Brexit. I did a piece a few weeks ago on, on the conduct of the European leaders pr- pr- um, prior to the, the summit. Um, the leaking from there wasn't from 
ingenue politicians who just mm. walked onto the European stage and are dealing with this big horrible um, Theresa May who let's remember is enacting a democratic um, decision in Britain which has annoyed an awful lot of people in Europe he, we, we got this we got this sneering um, uh, account from John Cole Juncker of what had happened in Downing Street where he was critical of the food now if one is wandering into a diplomatic um, high stakes diplomatic contest you don't start insulting your hosts at the very outset, it just see, it, so much of it seemed uncalled for. There was a decision at the highest levels in Europe to push the Brits out um, as quickly as we can in one way, but dra- drag it out over a period of 10 years while we're at it to make them suffer. Um, Juncker's team leaked the fact that he had slapped out uh, a um, the trade deal with Canada and pointed out to poor, 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 dumb Theresa May that this has taken 10 years to um, to negotiate. So don't think you're going to get out that, that easily. Plus we want 60 billion quid, which may be 100 billion. And none of your requests um, will will be complied with. It it, it strikes a cack-handed um, diplomacy. It it. It strikes Juncker in particular. Juncker seems in particular, it strikes, offensive, gratuitously it's, offensive. It strikes as a person that seems to want to humiliate um, his opponent, which is not a way to um, approach diplomatic um, counselling. And it reminds me of a lot of the activity I saw uh, and covered of the um, Eurocrats during our own crisis, mm-hmm. where a, another Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude Trichet, so, seemed to want to humiliate us and talk down to us. because we uh, were Almost a position, an authoritarian position of, approach. Absolutely, position of weakness. And, um, of course, we're, we're Irish people and um, they are British people. But uh, I was struck that when um, Mr Barnier walked into the into the doll last week, he was accompanied by this retinue of slick-looking... Um, <laughs> Um, Eurocrats who all had to see, seem to have the same the same suits <laughs> and framed glasses and were assiduously taking notes of his wonderful words which they must have heard 50 times over the last three weeks you know the, the Brits want to get out of a in club the ivory tower? they want to get out of a club the, the British no no the, the Eurocrats well you see the, the, the British public whether they've been misled or not that's that's for them to decide have been convinced of the uh, of the fact that this Over huge, <laughs> this huge bureaucracy um, seems to achieve little for their country, and they want out. Yeah, there is no yes, talk of EU. From, so I, I just want to ask Derwell of us. Derwell said there's a very little understanding I, I, in Europe. I, I, of yeah. what, I want to come want. at this from a different angle uh, because I was in the UK most of last week, and this guy came up to me, and he was a young Irish guy, and he's working in a top legal firm for conveyancing, mm. and he says, "I just want to tell you." that what's happening in London now is very similar to what happened in Ireland, because he used to work here, in 07-08. He said there was a, a block of really elite premium apartments and they actually had to give away free cars to close the deal and only 10% of them were sold. I, is there the, the potential, are you hearing in business conference and so on, that there, there, there is the real prospect, irrespective of the outcome on the, on the single union and anything else, 
of a recession in the UK coming down the tracks, which alone would cause us real problems. Yeah, it's really interesting if you kind of go to, to dinners in London, the, the horror they're discussing at the minute is the, the ongoing problems with the London property market, particularly at the higher end. And what you're seeing, um, it's interesting the amount of uh, lawyers that have sought to uh, to hedge their bets by registering here in Ireland. If they actually take up their uh, practicing certificates, uh, the law side will be bringing in an extra million uh, euro a year. But what you're kind of hearing is, particularly actually at that conference in Lisbon was around um, talent and retaining talent and because of the uncertainty people are moving they're moving. So, um, at an the minute, exodus out of London. There, there's an exodus out of London that, because these are major decisions, you know, where you relocate to. So these would be major companies and they're moving people out. So I think you're, you know, it, it hasn't, Brexit hasn't yet. And, and, and Mark Carney in the, the Bank of England's warning last week, it's going to happen soon, um, with, uh, with wages and, and, and kind of the consumer price index. But the, the British have been sort of comforted by the fact that we haven't seen a massive impact yet. But I think that we are going and to start to see it. And especially the in the financial. In, sector. Yeah, and the election is on. The last yeah. thing the Tories are going to do is say, just around the corner, there's a recession coming because of Brexit. Mm. Pauline, do you have any sense of that? I was actually quite shocked. He gave me anecdote after anecdote, and he said it was just like 2008. But you know, Ivan, you're the going people to, didn't yeah. were in denial and covered yeah. it up. But, but, but if, you, if you look at kind of the, the little things that've been happening, so look particularly in the next quarter or two, where the banks, where the financial services industries, where they're moving their people to, where they're going, and this is we see it just through the prism of are we getting enough people over to Ireland? But I think that um, if they're not quite an exodus, there's certainly a lot of tip towing out of London and its status as you know one of the main financial censors in the world is really under threat and that's one of the guns that they're pointing at that the particularly the for clearing. I, th- I think there is a lot of denial going on I mean and you laughed at me a moment ago when you said oh that's just because you believe in mediation and I've listened to what John says about, about Juncker and his attitude to the negotiations. Don't forget that, uh, and I sound as if I'm going hell for leather against Theresa May, and I am, um, because she's, <laughs> she has, I think, handled this very badly. But don't forget her Lancaster House um, speech and when she, she put out her stall was a very aggressive one and it was threatening. And anybody who starts a negotiation with a threat, I mean, she ended, I think I'm correct in saying her last paragraph of that speech was, if you don't give us what we want, we will do and more or less intimated that they become like an offshore island and take on the whole of Europe with their, their tax incentives. So I think she got it off on the wrong footing. And the Tory conference speech was even worse. Uh, yes. It was and more so, and, and yeah. don't forget, she had her run in many years ago with the police federation. She was very, very poor on policing in the, and the police would have very difficult uh, times and memories of her when she was Home Secretary. But the, tip- the thing is about getting it back on track now and I mean people will always quick, quickly say like John said that the English the British have made a, a, a democratic decision. I wonder about the validity of that in the sense that they weren't really told the truth beforehand. Boris Johnson are, John, John, Boris Johnson was chased down the street the other day John, refusing to answer questions. But John, where, John can I ask you what he said. But where do we go? If we don't accept a democratic decision yeah. where do we go? You know the, the, you have a vote. You yeah, have and a vote. There was another I referendum they probably endorsed. I think they would if there was another Just before we wrap up and Brexit. What I want to ask you is, um, if, if the British people want a bloody difficult woman representing them, do we have a bloody difficult anybody to look after our interests? <laughs> well, we have a Taoiseach who said he's going um, and he's going to make, he's going to make this, this clear um, next week. Was, was he suitably difficult is my question. This is, this is an argument that, that has gone back 30, 40 years in, 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 between Britain and Europe. We, we've always, we've really been closer to the British in the last 10 years I guess than many Mm -hmm. Uh, Enda Kenny has 
let's be fair to has him. Has he been too passive? Has, no, he has. He, he had a great success at the EU summit a couple of weeks ago. It was a diplomatic success in his part. He chaired his... He went back somewhat uh, That to was the, an extraordinary hype that Northern Ireland would go back into the EU for the love of Jesus. Absolutely. I mean, you know, where else was it going know, to go only back big, into the EU? Uh, to get that as a big diplomatic our paper, achievement. Our paper would be, would be accused of not giving him enough credit. In that instance, he won, he, he, he won a... He, he won a bit of, right. a, of a... He got a bit of a win. He came back with a win. The a best thing he win. can The best thing he can do now is bring clarity to our own political situation allow somebody to get in there who has a mandate behind them of his own party and then can go seek another mandate soon enough for a general election and that would not be Enda Kenny. Now my panel of John Lee of the Irish Mail on Sunday, Derville MacDonald of the INM and Pauline Maranen Quinn of Mediation Forum Ireland are still with us. We want to talk about Enda Kenny. Now a, a, a little birdie whispered to me last night Ivan, this was going to happen. Enda Kenny is going to stand up at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting on Wednesday evening next and he is going to set out staging posts which will mean that he will step down as Fine Gael leader in another week, allow a three-week process then for an election with hustings with a vote around the 8th of June, followed by he, oh-oh, he's saying, oh, well, now the new person will have to negotiate with the Independent Alliance, they'll have to negotiate with Fianna Fáil, they'll have to think about the... So I need to hang on now for another couple of weeks, and that gets him to the 22nd of June, which is about six weeks away from now, and then he'll eventually get to the end of ENDA. Uh, first of all, do you disagree with that, or would you have another scenario? Because no, no. it just seems to be a bit graceless the way it's been dragged out indefinitely. No, and people within Danny. the parliamentary party feel that um, that Enda Kenny has somewhat got um, Simon, Simon Coveney's ear and he has convinced him, this is their opinion, um, the backbenchers, that he has somehow convinced him that if Simon is a good boy and um, doesn't cause any, any dramatic uh, action against Enda Kenny that those remaining Enda Kenny loyalists may come into Simon Coveney's camp and that has stopped Leo Varadkar then from, from moving quickly so Enda Kenny has very very skillfully snookered opposition in the party and brought them to a point that they've left it so long to move on him that they can't yet we'll go back again that there's not much been done When do you think it'll start the actual official campaign like is, would you think it, some people saying Thursday morning some people saying the following week we would, You would assume Thursday morning but they've both been I, I, I think it's extraordinary uh, act of hubris that they've been discussing um, whether they're going to have this is Simon Coveney and Bradley Overag or whether they're going to have TV debates or not one, one would hope that we get some other candidates in, in the race as oh, well. We won't, though. We um, won't. Do you not think Richard no, Bruton could get a few nominations? No, he won't get eight, eight votes. I mean, this is, this, these two greyhounds are so far up the pitch. It's all, that's definitely... Oh, it's only a token thing to hold on to a cabinet position. Derville... Then are they suitable for Derville, Pete Taoiseach? Uh, what's your impression of the way this has been dragged out? Do you know, I'm, I think it's been quite tedious. There, there's, there's kind of a... A feeling that no one wants to disrespect the outgoing, the person who's outgoing, and and for for me, there's there's synergies between the long valedictories of both Bertie Ahern and um, and Enda Kenny. These long drawn out procedures that has politicos and us like us who are in it and, and all backbenchers all in a fluff about it. But actually, what's really really happening is 
that for the public, what's really disappointing is that we're in just absolute stasis. Like, I mean, the legislative record of this doll is absolutely appalling. And if you look back to Bertie Ahern when he did, and he was absolutely entitled to go to the House of Lords, to go to the, the his Congress. His lap of honour. His lap of honour. Meanwhile, the economy was tanking and, and not long after we had the near collapse of the, 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 the banking there. system. And there are kind of synergies here. Like one of the things that people say is, oh, you know, we need a end around for Brexit, but, you know, you know, we need a special kind of Brexit minister. But the Taoiseach of the day is going to be the ultimate Brexit negotiator. And I think that he needs to get out of the way. And I think he, he's been given a lot of grace to do so. And at this stage, this constant kind of kick in the can out is, is annoying, not only to, to the backbenchers who must be fr- frustrated, and also by Simon and Leo, but also just to the public at large. You know, good leaderships know when to stay and good leaders also know when to go. Pauline, will, will you be weeping and gnashing at the departure of Enda? No, I think the man has the most extraordinary tenacity and the, the um, constitution of an ox in the sense that he seems to have boundless energy and resilience and could tell us all about surviving. Um, and I, he doesn't look a day older. He doesn't look a day older. Today. You're, you're the man who my, <laughs> my, my two, my two uh, learned colleagues here are very, very versed in the, the whole political scenario and all of that. I'm coming at it, I suppose, from a more objective point of view. But you could give us the odds in, in relation to Who's the, win? the outsiders. I have, I, you, you wrote a very good piece yesterday. I give you 200 you, to you 1. You wrote a very good piece yesterday in the, <laughs> no in, in the Independent about the need for Ireland to be at the table. I mean, back sure. to the Brexit, I know. But um, in many respects, I heard um, somebody speaking last week about the whole agri-business, a chap called Dara Murphy. I, yeah. never, I don't know him, by the way. He's not yeah, a friend. He's from North But Park, I would kind of put central. money on him in the sense that what I have a kind of a tune I'd humming in my head. <laughs> I, I have a hum <laughs> ch- ch- uh, tune humming in my head at the moment. And that is about the need for the people who are at that talk, those talks in relation to Brexit being experts well, to, on our agribusiness. Okay. In our agribusiness. Okay. And he knew his way around well, that. And secondly, he's diplomatic and speaks very diplomatically. And I'd add to your article of yesterday in that we need diplomatically skilled Do you have any preference end. between Leo and Simon? Um, no, I see. I would put my money on um, an outsider coming in from right. me. Um, right, the, like the the rules are very clear. Are you have to get eight TDs or MEPs mm. to nominate you, yeah, and that. these guys have it stitched. Um, who do you think will win? Um, I think Leo will win it, but yeah. I think th- I think they've gotten themselves in a problem. We've we've come to accept the madness as 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 the norm. Enda <laughs> Kenny. Lost twenty six seats a year ago. You One know, third. He he has been extremely weak. Teacher, this party does not need uh, a Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, good looking, um, ad- adept media operators. This party needs somebody to get in there and reform that party from the ground up. And probably needs Andy Kenny ten years ago, but unfortunately, the Sunday Times have an interesting poll saying that amongst Fine Gaelers is quite close with even uh, uh, Coveney ahead. But in the general public, uh, uh, Leo has a lead. Is there a, a feeling, leaving aside the Dublin factor and Cork factor, that he might have a kind of non-political bounce? Uh, a Leo, kind of Macron or Leo, Leo, Leo will get a bounce. He has that one name recognition. He has that celebrity status. But I just, I just wonder about whether his character will stand up. God forbid, there's another 2008 um, type crisis. Apart, will, will he stand up to apart, those pressures? Joking apart, I do think. I think. I think Simon Coveney has the has the agricultural background and knowledge there. And seriously speaking, if we're going to be at those Brexit talks and tables, we need people who know their way around that. And who, because our 
our agribusiness is one of the biggest areas to be worried about. Okay, um, final word to you, Dervil. Uh, I'm agnostic who, on who it should be, but I think the longer the campaign... Who would you like, Who would you like? Do you know, I, if I've, you had a vote... Well, I'm, I'm agnostic on who on who I would vote for. I think the longer the campaign goes over, it may favour Simon We don't do more. agnostic on this well, programme. Get off no. the fence. I actually... I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I would like to see... It would be interesting if there was a third force or a third way that came up just to challenge the two of them, but um, I'm not sure who that's going to be. Okay, well, another little birdie told me that actually the contest won't last three weeks. Mm -hmm. It'll be over very quickly when uh, up to 40 or more will declare for Leo uh, that this could be done and dusted quite quickly. But the media have to get three weeks of entertainment, Everett. Well, we've got plenty of entertainment out of my panel today. My thanks to John Lee, political editor at the Irish Mail on Sunday, the group business editor at Irish Independent Media Newspapers, Derville MacDonald, and founder of Mediation Forum Ireland, and also the founding ombudsman of both the Defence Forces and the Insurance Industry, Pauline Marin and Quinn. My thanks to uh, all of you. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.